0: The Provoke Podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media
1: and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Mark Tears. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome
0: everyone to the Provoke Podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman from Provoke Media. I'm joined today by Raja Rajamanar, who is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for MasterCard and President of the company's healthcare business. Raja also serves as President of the World Federation of Advertisers and is based currently in Cincinnati, Ohio. Raja, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I much appreciate having me on your show.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. And, and one of the reasons you're on the show is because you have written a book uh, called Quantum Marketing, uh, in which you look at marketing's role in business. Um, so let's start there, if you don't mind. One of the things I was, I was looking at in terms of your book is that You described marketing as being in a fifth paradigm, um, re-establishing relevance while expanding impact. Sorry to appear uh, a little ignorant, but what were the first four paradigms?
1: So uh, we are right now at the cusp of the fourth and the fifth paradigm. We are just Mm -hmm. about to enter the fifth paradigm. The first paradigm, you know, marketing has been practiced since antiquity. So it was found evidence of Mm. very solid marketing was found, uh, even in places like Pompeii, where they were doing, uh, you know, uh, what we call uh, messaging for political candidates and what kind of houses they would put. So there was really marketing going on, probably a little rudimentary compared to how we look at it today. So the first several centuries of marketing was all in paradigm one, which was basically focused on the product. It's all product marketing. You have a great product, give it a nice packaging, price it appropriately, make it widely available. People will come and buy your product because people are rational and logically thinking human beings. This was paradigm one. Now, marketers somewhere down the line have discovered the joys of psychology, sociology, anthropology, and so on, which then they realized, you know what, actually people don't decide logically or rationally. They act totally out of feelings and they are emotional human beings. They're emotional Mm -hmm. beings and all their decision-making is emotion-driven. So that was the birth of Paradigm two which is all about emotional marketing. And it got so, uh, uh, what do you call prevalent and so deeply rooted that people started actually only talking about emotions, even to the exclusion of the product. A mm. classical example that of that is MasterCard. So we showed our ex- first advertisement, for example, under the priceless uh, banner. A father and a son going to a baseball match. And we say price of the tickets, X amount of dollars. Soda, so many dollars. autograph ball, $40. But the time spent with your 11-year-old son is priceless. There are some things mm. that cannot be bought with money. Those are the things which are important for you in your life. For everything else, there is MasterCard. So you don't talk about what a great company MasterCard is or what a great product it is, the rewards, the cashback, the security, nothing. It's about the emotion between a father and a son. And this became an instant hit. And it is running till date. Priceless as a platform is running till date. A lot of companies have done this emotional marketing and continue to do that. And this was the second paradigm. And emotional marketing actually got a lot of boost with the advent of two technologies. One is called radio and the other one is television. Mm -hmm. So both these technologies Mm -hmm. gave marketers the ability to tell stories in a very compelling, impactful way. And that was the uh, booming of the emotional uh, marketing, which is paradigm two. Then in mid-1990s came the birth of the third paradigm. So there were two technologies which happened in 1990s. One was internet, and second one was Mm -hmm. data analytics. Till that time, data was essentially seen to be in the purve of the scientists, economists, the geeks and the nerds. Marketers couldn't care less about data, but suddenly when they discovered the power of data, it completely changed the entire face of marketing. It was that plus internet how you could connect with people. And it was a totally different scenario. So that was the birth of digital marketing and data-driven marketing. That was paradigm three. Then in 2007, again, two seminal technologies were born. One was social media platform with Facebook scaling that year big time. And second was the birth of iPhone. iPhone Mm -hmm. ushered in the era of connected mobile devices, so between social media and the mobile devices, life changed completely for marketers. They had to literally reinvent marketing. And that was the birth of mobile marketing, influencer marketing, or social media marketing. Now, if you notice, each one of these paradigms were shifting to the next paradigm with the help of two technologies at a time. But mm. we are now at the verge of the fifth paradigm where we are going to be bombarded by nearly two dozen technologies. Very powerful technologies like artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, drones for deliveries and logistics and stuff like that, 3D printing, 5G telecommunications, blockchains, smart speakers, internet of things, wearables. The list is crazy. Two dozen technologies are coming at us like a tsunami which is going to result in the most unprecedented disruption in the world of marketing. And that is the fifth paradigm of marketing. Now, whatever has been working so far as marketing, that's classical marketing, is not going to work in the fifth paradigm. You need to Mm -hmm. reimagine marketing. You need to rethink what the new models will be, what the new frameworks will be, what the new strategies will be. And the collection of that new methodologies is what I call quantum marketing. If I can just give one simple example, Mm -hmm. if you look at the world of physics, what is physics? Physics is the science with which you try to understand how things around you work in the physical environment. So you postulate various theories and laws like the law of gravity, or you've got uh, magnetism, you got electricity. All these are explained by classical physics. Worked well, brilliantly for centuries. Till that time, mankind suddenly started discovering outer space. When they could look into outer space, they found out that classical physics just could not explain anything there. Or, on the other extreme, when they went inside atoms and started looking inside atoms and subatomic particles, classical physics was breaking down. Or, when objects were flying very fast at the speed of light or approaching the speed of light, rather, classical physics will break down. So, a new field of physics was born called quantum physics. To explain these other phenomena. And today, a lot of what we do is based on the foundations of quantum physics. So what quantum physics is to classical physics, I would say quantum marketing is to classical marketing. So it's a completely new framework and a new way to approach the world of marketing to be able to succeed and thrive tomorrow. So that is essentially what my book is all about.
0: Very interesting. So considerable and, and profound change uh, almost feels like the changes you described have actually are accelerating in, in a sense in the way that the, each subsequent change is, is more profound from from, from the previous um, iteration. Now, in your, in one of the things in your book that you argue is that um, in, this, in this kind of new data-led marketing world, where technology uh, is so influential, Uh, marketers are being left behind and and you you suggest that the obsolescence of marketing has begun. Um, Now, from our perspective at at Provoke Media, we are focused more on the communications, public relations world. Uh, And from, from our vantage point, it always looks like CMOs, are the rock stars. Um, So why are they becoming obsolete?
1: CMOs have been rock stars, but there is a profound change happening, right? Since the advent of the third paradigm, marketing has become very quantitative as opposed to being qualitative, creative, innovative. There is a healthy Mm -hmm. dose of science, technology, and data that has come into marketing. Now, marketers have been classically trained in the right-side brain of right-brain thinking, which is all qualitative, creative, etc. They are struggling and Mm -hmm. they have been struggling to get their heads around the new aspects of marketing, which are quantitative, technology-led, data-driven, and so on. Now, what happens as a result of which is they started getting replaced by a new breed of uh, people like you know chief growth officer chief revenue officer chief customer officer mm-hmm. these folks are not marketing people now if you take away from marketers growth re- revenue and customers what else is there in marketing now mm-hmm. there was a, there were a lot of surveys which were done so one of the surveys for example recent ones had shown that more than 70% of all the ceos have said that they do not have confidence in their CMOs. They do not have confidence in their marketing teams to be able to drive business growth. That is a deadly Mm. kind of a situation to be in. It's disastrous. Second, a large number of CMO roles started getting eliminated. And these are not some obscure industrial companies. They are hardcore packaged goods companies like Johnson & Johnson. They've done away with the role Mm of CMO. Now that is proof. On the other hand, marketing, if you look at old times, Philip Kotler used to say, uh, and he was a father of modern marketing for all practical purposes, there were four P's of marketing. Now marketers are not handling those four P's. They're handling only one P, promotions. Somebody else Mm -hmm. handles products, which now there is a new breed of people called chief product officers they don't report it to marketing. Then you have got chief, uh, the pricing is done by somebody else. Place, which is distribution is done by somebody else. So what happens is marketers role is shrinking. CMOs roles are getting eliminated. CEOs are expressing low confidence in marketers uh, and then the CMOs. So this is a ripe mix for what I call existential crisis of marketing. In this kind of a situation, Mm. I say, look, marketing is in an existential crisis. They have to get their heads and hands around what is going on. Now, the problem is the new technologies that I just talked about, each one of them spew out a humongous amount of more data. So there's Mm. going to be even if you think today you're drowning in data, you have no idea what's going to come tomorrow. Every single device is now capturing data and spewing it out. What do you do with it? How do you process it? How do you make sense out of it? And how do you act on it in a way that you are simultaneously respecting the privacy of the consumers, protecting their data, yet getting powerful, actionable insights for marketing? Now, marketers are not able to grapple with that right even today. So that's a big concern. So this is the time when marketers have to really invest time and effort to learn to staff their teams with people who understand these areas. As a team, at least collectively, there should be a robust, wholesome, well-rounded marketing team. And that's what actually is needed. Now, when you look at public relations, this is another interesting paradigm. Now, in the classical world, public relations was here, marketing was here, right? Okay. Now, a lot of companies including MasterCard, what we have realized and recognized is that Actually, it is one single continuum between marketing and mm-hmm. public relations. You are in the business of, in these functions, you are messaging, you are having narratives, you are telling your story. In case of marketing, it's predominantly got consumers, customers, prospects, etc. And you're trying to tell your message to them in a compelling way and ask them to, uh, to buy your product or use one of your product or whatever. In public relations, you're doing two things. Number one, you're making other people talk good things about you on the one hand. Mm-hmm. You're using media, you're leveraging media, you're telling your story there and hoping that they're going to write well about your company or about your brand or new launch. And then you're constantly vigilant about whether anything is affecting the company's or the brand's reputation. Now, there is digital marketing, there is digital communication. In my mind, the mm-hmm. two are basically absolutely same. There is no need to segregate and put these two separately. In a world which is getting increasingly digitized, and it's already digitized humongously, it's going to be even more so, there is no point in keeping those two functions separate. The message, continuity, consistency, and the impact and the mutual synergy that will be obtained when both marketing and communications are together is huge. Many, many, many companies mm. are actually doing it. MasterCard is one of those, but there are so many other companies mm-hmm. which are getting these two functions together for precisely those reasons of very high effectiveness that you will witness. Because classically, what I've found is that a dollar invested in PR gives you a better return if you did a good job than a dollar invested mm-hmm. in marketing when you have done a very good job. But if you put both mm-hmm. these two together behind the same campaigns, the build-off of each other and the outcome is actually much better than what each one of them would individually accomplish. And we have quantitatively mm. proven that many companies have proven that time and again. So in future, when we are looking at the, uh, what do you call, fifth paradigm, the fact that marketing and comps have to really be tight, if not together, is going to be very critical.
0: Mm. Yeah, I- indeed, it is something we've seen as, a, as an increasing trend, the, the integration of marketing and communications, marketing and PR. Um, there's a concern on the PR side that they are being subsumed within marketing and that somehow this reduces their influence within a specific company. Do you feel that's a, an understandable concern?
1: I think the concern is valid given historical uh, what you call happenings, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. If the entire effort of combining marketing and communications is essentially seen by anyone as a takeover of communications by marketing, that is the end of Mm -hmm. the story. It's going to be disastrous. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you look at it as a merger of equals, And you're also Mm. simultaneously carving out more dollars for PR from every single marketing campaign. Actually, what was PR before and what is PR today, you will see a significant enhancement Mm. in their budgets on the one hand. For Mm. the people in PR, it would also mean a much broader career growth path that's available to them. And the, the beauty of it is, you know, it, it, this is actually, it works very well at so many levels for both the marketing people and the communications people. And if any company is actually merging these two and making communications or PR subservient to marketing, that I think is a complete, unfortunately missed opportunity. It has to be a merger of equals. Mm. There is no question about it.
0: Mm. And presumably that's how you've structured your own team at MasterCard?
1: Absolutely. Like, for example, I'll give you at MasterCard, uh, my comms head, uh, she reports to me, she and I are both on the management committee of MasterCard. Mm. Right. Right? So we are putting communications or PR, we call it communications because it also includes beyond PR, Mm. internal communications as well. Right. So we, we, Mm-hmm. Call it broader broadest communications. So communications and marketing at MasterCard, they're equal partners. They manage to be, they are managed mm-hmm. by me, and I'm called the chief marketing and communications officer for the company. So mm-hmm. I've got like it literally yeah. that two legs or two eyes, call it whichever way it is. And both are extremely critical, and they have got tremendous amount of weightage from the communication mm-hmm. side of the house. Today, if you see what their budgets will be compared to what historically they would have been. It's much better off yeah. because what we are trying to do is to say every campaign carve out money also for, uh, comes in addition to what you used to have in the past. So budgets get multiplied, the growth opportunities go up. There is cross trading that happens in a very big way, and there is a complete involvement of them in the running of the business as opposed to just only dealing mm. with the media and then doing some uh, you know and positioning executives. Here it is actually they drive business. They are heavily involved yeah. in the day-to-day of the business, which is fantastic to see.
0: Mm. And, of course, the benefit, as you put it, is uh, it does it can expand horizons, right? Expanded budgets and expanded horizons. Um, one of the things we've seen uh, on the marketing side sometimes is that there isn't always the most sophisticated understanding of reputation management. You see companies... Um, And getting into crisis situations. Uh, I mean, I don't want to call anyone out specifically, but a great example is, is, you know, the PepsiCo Kendall Jenner ad, where, um, you know, one of the classic reasons attributed for that is that uh, this was a marketing decision that never uh, went through the public relations department. Now, how do you um, see that particular challenge? Do you feel like marketers now have a better understanding of reputation management? Or is that still an area uh, that they need to address?
1: I think they're coming up the curve. But Mm. they always need to have a close partnership with their comms Mm. peer. Right? So for example, when we are creating any new campaign at Mastercard, the comms person is there very much involved. Because what we try to see, if we're creating a particular campaign, the first question that you ask is, is this going to get us into trouble? And how so? And what do we do to stay clear of that trouble? That's something which we have to actually address right up front. And rather than contain the fire, once it has broken down, you make sure that there is no fire to start with. When you have your comms person and the comms agency involved right from the beginning, you're in a much better position. This is number one. Number Mm. two, in each one of the regions as well around the world, like for example, for Asia-Pacific. So I have got my head of uh, Asia-Pacific for marketing and communications as one individual. So Mm. uh, he handles both marketing and communications for the region. And uh, sort of he's come up the curve and he has got a solid carbs person and he has got solid marketing person under him handling different aspects of the function of the integrated function you know we emphasize on the integration between marketing and communications and to just drive that philosophy we call our unified function as integrated marketing and communications i.e imc we call ourselves imc right? right and so this percolates at the regional level then when you go below the regions at the country level, again, the country, there is a single person who heads marketing and communications. So therefore, you are not blindsided by having two different silos who are there together in theory, but they are not working in tandem. They have actually brought that mm-hmm. unification all the way down to the country level. So if you look mm-hmm. at India again, India would have one single person who's looking at marketing and communications. Or you have the same thing in China or in Japan or in the Korea, mm-hmm. country after country, Singapore. Mm.
0: It's, it's a very good example, and I think it's, it's one that m- more companies um, should be looking at. You talked about the changes in technology uh, and how they are impacting marketing. Um, but it's not just the changes in technology. It's the, um, the broader shifts uh, sometimes that these changes symbolise. Uh, for example, um, we are seeing now that populism, is impacting uh, how companies engage with their various stakeholders. Uh, and that is being fueled uh, in many cases by technology, by the ability of people to gather, you know, GameStop, uh, Robin Hood is a very good recent example of that kind of phenomenon. Um, how do you see these kinds of shifts? Populism, for example, um, impacting how uh, companies think about their marketing and communication strategies?
1: See, where there is uh, substantial advances in technology, the ability to move information uh, at scale and at speed has amplified like crazy. Now, the technology Mm -hmm. does not necessarily by itself distinguish information from misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. So, and there are always people who say there is the truth and people will say my truth, right? And if they have different versions of my truth, that's when these things start happening, the clashes start happening and so on. Now, as brands, one of the first things that we have to do is... We have to assume larger responsibilities than just for our companies and for our brands. If you look at consumers, they are saying more than 80% of the consumers in the world who have been surveyed in different surveys, they say that look, companies and brands have a responsibility to do something about this, to do social good. They have to take a stance on issues. And they have to act behind those stances. Don't just pay lip service, but do something about it. Don't throw simply ads at us. Do some good. And people are Mm -hmm. willing to vote with their wallets behind those or to those brands or for those brands which are doing social good or which are making a difference. This is more so Mm -hmm. true for the millennial segment, for the new generations, even a lot more than people who are like you know baby boomers and those generations. But it is getting more and more prevalent right now. So brands have to therefore have very solid understanding of the pulse of the market, number one. Number two, when I talk about responsibility, they have to assume, on the one hand, consumers are demanding. On the other hand, look at it this way. If you look at all the social media companies, who is funding them? Where do they get all the revenues from? it is the advertising budgets of brands, right? So can the brands not hold the social media companies accountable for societal oh. safety, right? Oh. I like, for example, if there is the Christchurch shooting, unfortunately, which happened a couple of years back and that was live, uh, you know, what you call transmitted, that's a disaster. Oh. How can you allow that kind of a thing to happen? So we as marketers have to get together and to hold the feet of the, of the various platforms to the fire. Because I think we owe it collectively mm-hmm. to the society, right? And because we are funding mm-hmm. at the end of the, these, these platforms in some sense, right? And not in some sense, in every sense. So we have to do this. So in order to precisely do this, organizations like the WFA, for which I'm the president of, so we have got together as brands as social media platforms, as uh, agencies, every technology companies got together and saying that, okay, let's have some basic game rules or rules of the game here. Firstly, let's understand Mm -hmm. as an example, what is hate speech and how do we stop hate Mm -hmm. speech? Now, what you'll be shocked is even amongst the brands and amongst the various constituents, each one has their own definition of what is a hate speech and what is not, and what is freedom of speech. Right, And it is a fascinating thing. So it took us months, but we crossed the bridge where we have agreed to a common definition of what is hate speech. And now we are saying this is the standard that we have to have. Then we are talking about various aspects as to what, uh, you know, how should you not only keep the brand safe, but how do you keep internet as a safe place? And how should that be done? Mm. What kind of technologies should be developed? What kind of third-party auditing should be done? What kind of cross media measurements should be done? So we're actually taking a whole series of topics to be resolved as an industry because this one single brand, one single company, however big it might be, will not be able to resolve this. So we have to get together. That's exactly what is happening. We are at the beginning Mm. of the journey because we are realizing these kind of things happening more as an industry now than before plus, with advances in uh, artificial intelligence and the new technologies that are coming at us, things can get aggravated and totally out of control if you don't take care of them today. And so the foundations are now beginning to happen right from now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because um, we're seeing that sometimes these threats, you know, they don't have much basis in reality. Um, And uh, you mentioned disinformation, misinformation, fake news. Uh, the, the shared truths that perhaps have bound us together are uh, not, not quite, or let's say they're fraying a little bit. D- does this mean you rethink how you uh, approach conversations um, with your customers, with people online? Um, because sometimes there is no basis in reality for uh, for what people are saying, and yet it can turn into a reputation threat very
1: quickly. Exactly. You see, that's the whole thing, right? Now, collectively between marketing and communications, it's not only about building the brand, but it is also protecting the reputation of the brand. Now, protecting mm-hmm. the reputation of the brand can happen at multiple levels. So one is when people are actually uh, tweeting for some, something stupid you have done and you're getting trashed for it. Well, that's one way where you say, okay, fine, mea culpa. I have messed it up. I own it up and this is what I'm going to do. And then quickly get out of the situation and start following through whatever commitments you have made. Otherwise, people will come back to you saying that you just tried not said some false things to just get out of the situation. So this is one type. The second one is where there is misinformation, there is wrong targeting, there is uh, you know uh, un- unfair mm-hmm. amplification of something which is not even true to begin with. That's where bra- banks and b- brands are actually at a disadvantage. So the, the social media pol- uh, platforms, in particular. Need to have some checks and balances to be able to curtain those. You know, mm-hmm. if, because it's not just only about social issues, because brands also are dealing with issues day in and day out, and they have to protect their reputation, particularly when they're not at fault or particularly when they're being unfairly trolled. There have to be some safety mechanisms built for them, too. So I think these are all the topics which are extremely mm-hmm. valid, easier said than done. If they were easy to solve, they would have been Mm -hmm. solved already by now. But there are, you know, you do one thing, Mm -hmm. and there is an unintended consequence in some other part of the ecosystem. So there are very nested issues that have to be carefully tackled. And that's what, you know, slowly issue by issue, we are trying to unpack, understand, and then try to uh, put some uh, policies in place for the various companies to practice, particularly the uh, media companies, social media companies, and so on. Mm
0: A lot of it, I suppose, comes down to risk management. Uh, and I was reading that you actually have, you have a kind of a dedicated risk function within your team. Yeah. Is that correct? And how has that helped That's you right. during, during this pandemic? How has that helped?
1: You know, it's actually very interesting. In 2013, when I joined MasterCard, One of the opportunities I saw was to build a complete sense of trust and transparency or trust based on transparency between marketing and finance. So at that time, I formed Mm -hmm. a group, a finance group within marketing, that dual reports to me as Mm -hmm. well as to the CFO of the company. That was a brilliant experiment. And suddenly, you know, there was total transparency, openness and collaboration in an unprecedented level, which really saw the company in a very good stead. And so we just declined, say that marketing has nothing to hide. We are an open kimono. We know what we are actually doing. We know what we are spending on. We know what we are getting for what we are spending and so on. We put all ROI metrics and so on. And because it was being done by the finance people, there was a lot of credibility to what was being presented, which was very oh, yes. helpful. Now, uh, about 2017 or 16, I can't exact, 2017, I was actually sitting with my CFO and uh, discussing and said, okay, for the next five years, what should our thinking be? And one of those areas I felt very uncomfortable about is that we are going to be facing a series of risks, Mm -hmm. whether it could be financial risk or economic risk or social risk or cybersecurity risk. uh, There are so many risks which marketing actually deals with. And interestingly, We didn't have a department to focus on that. So I come from financial services where there is a risk management function, which looks at all the risks across the business and really focuses on them. And there are risk mitigation plans and so on. I said, let's actually import that kind of thinking and a mindset. So I asked my CFO to become my new head of risk management. So to the best of my knowledge, Probably we are the first uh, marketing department anywhere in any company which has got a risk management function now within marketing. And so my CFO became my risk management head. So what she does is she outlines every single type of risk that marketing faces data privacy risk, data security risk, or compliance risk, or reputational risk, contractual risk, third-party risk. There are so many risks across the board. And for each one of them, understand what is the probability that this risk will materialize? And if it does materialize, what is the magnitude of impact on the company? So when mm-hmm. you put it like a heat map, It immediately becomes clear where you need to focus right away and take care of those and have contingency plans. Now, plan plan A is to make sure that systems and processes are in place and training is done appropriately, that these risks don't happen. You fix all the loose ends, you you fill all the gaps so that you don't have vulnerability to those risks, but you can never be 100% safe. So some risk may or will, unfortunately, materialize. And if it does materialize, how? what do you do immediately? You don't figure out the game plan mm. at that stage. You figure out the game plan now so that if and when the risk happens, you just press the button and go to the contingency mode. You have trained your people well. You've got the processes all set up beforehand. So when this happens, without uh, uh, any uh, stumbling, you without missing a beat, you get into the contingency mode. That has thank God, helped us so much because we have done Mm. all this. But we never anticipated COVID to be sure. But we anticipated Mm. a lot of disruptions. So we used that playbook. Mm. We had the building blocks. We quickly adapted. Like for example, we used to be heavily reliant. We still are heavily reliant in our marketing and communication. Some experiences. So we curate and create experiences that money cannot buy, but you can get them if you have a MasterCard and they get them economically. And at scale, we run them uh, literally thousands and thousands of them around the world. In a pandemic world, people don't go and have these experiences. Mm. They're locked down in their homes, so what do you do? So we anticipated at one point saying that if people are, if events are getting canceled, what do you do? So we said, you take experiences to people's homes and we have to have a whole digital experiences that we need to create. So we had the platform and the approach ready well in advance so when it happened we said mm. let's let's switch the button on or press the button and th- that's mm. it we started so th- those are the ways it actually helped us quite a lot
0: mm, yeah and it, it probably helps to explain why uh, mastercard has has weathered the past 12 months better than better than many companies um raja uh, final question for you we hear a lot about uh IQ and EQ. But I understand that you are a fan of something called the decency quotient, which uh, sounds amazing, in my opinion. Um, Please explain that to our listeners and and tell us why you think it's important.
1: See, first and foremost, I think uh, companies typically tend to be in a major rat race within the company and outside right and they are so focused on the goals and objectives and accomplishments and achievements and success and so on and so forth that many times the human aspects the empathy for each other gets missed out right and probably the more blue chip the companies in terms of you know the all the toppers from the various institutes they go they are so focused and they are so absolutely literally fanatic about their uh, career progression and so on. But a lot of things get done, Mm -hmm. which are probably not necessarily very decent. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm not talking just about politics, a whole lot beyond that, right? So one of the things which we have is what we call as decency quotient. We said, look, you may have a lot of IQ and a lot of EQ, which will make you successful. But what will make you a good human being is a DQ. I think we owe it to ourselves mm. to be good, decent human beings, which means be good, do good. This is not goody-goody and fluffy, and uh, uh, you know, not be ambitious, not have aspirations. So no, we are saying that they are not mutually exclusive, but don't be focused on the IQ and the EQ and the career and the progression and the results and etc. to the exclusion of humanity. Okay, we we have to display that. We have to embody that. You might be a fantastic person in every way. You're professionally super competent. And then you're very smart in terms of how you navigate the politics and all that stuff. That's not what will sustain the company to the future, particularly when we are entering the fifth paradigm. It is the goodness of heart. It's a goodness Mm -hmm. of the company that comes from within. And I think that's what, so, you know, in fact, what I admire and uh, applaud Ajay Banga, uh, you know, mm. and I would say that he was the guy who came with this. It's not me. You know, Ajay was the mm. one who came up with this whole approach of decency quotient. And we started propagating that right from the top of the house and practicing it and rewarding and celebrating people who are actually displaying extraordinary decency. And, and mm. that sort of, you know, changes yeah. the culture, makes the police place much more warm and wonderful to work with, as opposed to saying that, oh, I'm off to races and I have to keep running for the next 10 hours when I go to office, or even if I'm not, mm. that's not how it has to be. There has to be that collegial camaraderie, because, you know, uh, let's get it uh, right. Most of us uh, who are in these kind of professions, we spend most of our uh, life that we are awake In the company of our colleagues and clients, not even with our families, unfortunately. We spend so much amount of time, 10-12 hours every day you're spending it. And if it is a drudgery that you have to suffer, you'll have a miserable life. It's not worth it. So Mm. I think it's, we owe it to ourselves individually. We owe to ourselves as a company that we have to be decent practice decency, encourage and celebrate decency in the company. So this is what, in Mm. fact, uh, is the philosophy that we practiced and we practice. And, uh, you know, something which I have outlined uh, in my book as well, the quantum marketing, which is about Mm. this decency quotient and the importance of it. And particularly, you know, if you want to attract and keep top talent for tomorrow, the younger generations particularly, the younger generation, I tell you, they are far, far evolved than the previous Mm -hmm. generations in terms of what they look for. They are more purpose-driven. They are more society-driven. These are the folks who are actually embodying decency quotient more than the previous generations, (laughs) I can tell you that. And for Mm -hmm. them, it matters. These kind of values matter. And that's going to be not only good for the company, but it's also in a weird way, a competitive advantage for the company to attract and retain the best talent because you give them the life of their times or the time of their lives.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it sounds so obvious, right? But I suppose the difficulty uh, is in implementing it. Um, it isn't as common as it should be, but I think it's a, it's a great way uh, of looking uh, at the business world. Uh, and it, it's great to hear actually. So Raja, thank you so much. For your time. It's much appreciated. I'm aware it's the evening for you over there. Um, I hope you, uh, you, you, you take care and stay safe amid these uh, crazy times.
1: Thank you very much Arun. Uh, really appreciate having me on your podcast and uh, look forward to having a chat with you again sometime in the near future. Please take care, stay safe and be well. Been listening to the provoked podcast brought to you by provoked media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers support for this podcast comes from notified the integrated intelligent and easy to use pr software get a free demo today at notified.com